Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 51 and the Psalm of Repentance. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, that we can know for sure who you are, and what you're like, because you have revealed yourself finally and fully in the word, which testifies to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. So we can know, we can know for sure that you are who you say you are, and that you remain the same. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Lord, we can know you, we can trust you, we can love you. So Lord, help us now as we open your word challenge us to see our great need of you even more and give us a love for what you love and a hatred for what you hate and lord i pray that you would also use our time together to open eyes and ears to the truth of the gospel that you might bring the dead to new life in your name and for your glory in jesus precious name i pray amen and amen Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. It's the reading of God's precious word. You know, certain chapters in the Bible, they're famous for particular doctrines or themes. 1 Corinthians 13 is known as a love chapter. Hebrews 11 is framed for the portraits of faith. 
Psalm 51 is, is known as the classic prayer of repentance. In fact, the superscription to Psalm 51 tells us that it was pinned by King David after the prophet Nathan confronted him for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And David responded to Nathan by doing what God calls us to do whenever we're confronted with our sins. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It was not to Nathan that David needed to confess, but to God. And Psalm 51 records David's prayer. Repentance is a stepchild in the family of Christian doctrines, neglected, unwanted, and underappreciated. We're eager to talk about grace and forgiveness and more positive themes, but repentance is sadly too often left out today. Some Christians even consider repentance to be a legalistic offense to the grace of God. And yet repentance is so necessary to salvation that Jesus began his ministry on this note in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, he preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith 15.3 stands in line with the Savior's teaching when he says that repentance is of such a necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. And so what is repentance? Simply put, repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. Repentance and faith are inseparably joined in the Bible. And so Jesus said that we must repent and believe. Sinclair Ferguson says, Faith cannot exist where there's no repentance. I cannot come to Christ in faith without turning from sin and repentance. They are two sides of the same coin of belonging to Jesus. So repentance is of great concern to Christians, and this psalm is a most helpful guide to them. And now Psalm 51 presents four vital matters of this doctrine. Repentance requires confession of sin, reliance on the mercy of God. It finds cleansing in the blood of Christ and produces new obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so first, Psalm 51 shows that repentance requires confession of sin. David's first two verses speak of his need for forgiveness and cleansing. And in verses 3 and 4, he says why. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. This stands as a classic statement of David's guilt before God. Many a convicted criminal is sorry that they're caught. Repentance yet means being sorry for the sin itself and the harm it caused to others. Hugh Martin says true confession is taking guilt to ourselves before God. It is the unreserved acknowledgement of the heinousness of sin and our consequent inexcusable ill desert or righteous liability to the wrath of God. To confess sin, we need to know what it is. And in this psalm, and in verses 1 through 5, we see three nouns that present different aspects of sin and its nature. The first is transgression from the Hebrew word pisha. In verse 1 and 3, transgress, it means to cross a boundary or to break a rule. Julius Caesar transgressed when he took his army across the river Rubicon, becoming an outlaw against Rome by crossing the forbidden line. We all have transgressed against God by violating his law. Simply per peruse the Ten Commandments and you're going to find that you, like David, are 
a law-breaking transgressor. The second term is iniquity, from the Hebrew awan, meaning perversion or corruption in Psalm 51, verse 2. As David points out in Psalm 51, verse 5, his very nature is depraved and has since been the, the, at, since the moment of his conception. David confesses here that his desires are offensive to God and not merely his actions. And the third is sin, the Hebrew word chata in verses 2 and 3. It means to fall short or to miss the mark. And David realized that he was not the man he should have been. David applies this shortcoming to everyone, or Paul, I should say, applies this to everyone when he says in Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when we talk of confessing our sin, all three of the ideas I just mentioned must be involved. We must admit the things we've done wrong, the specific ways we have transgressed God's holy law. And David's concern to confession, to confess, excuse me, transgression is seen in Psalm 51 verse 4, where he admits that he has violated God's justice and offended the holiness of God. When he says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not denying that he has sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah. But what grieves him the most is the knowledge that he has sinned against God. He has dishonored God. He has angered Almighty God. And God has therefore been right to judge him. And David admits this in Psalm 51 verse 4. You may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And it's one thing to say, I did something I shouldn't have done. But true repentance goes further. It says, I have given personal offense to God by breaking his holy law. And now many of us stop short of true repentance and therefore of God's renewed blessing because we will not admit our guilt. We shift the blame. We attack anyone who accuses us, but David shows us that when our sin is found out by ourselves or even by others, we ought to admit, specifically, I have sinned against God and God is right to condemn me. My actions were wrong and I should be judged. And since sin includes having a corrupt nature and falling short of God's mark, these dimensions of our sin should also be confessed. And David prays in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This verse does not suggest that there was something particularly wicked with regard to David's conception. Rather, David acknowledges the universal problem known as original sin. And original sin does not refer to the actual sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It refers to the effects of their sin on all humanity. Because of this condition, Paul declares in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. Adam's sin brought God's curse upon a race so that we are all born in a fallen state of moral corruption. And in noting his inherited depravity, David acknowledges that he did not just happen to sin at that one time. Rather, sin was engraved into his very nature. He was a sinner at his core, and that is why he sinned. David confessed his sin to God not as a small or even a fleeting problem that could be easily brushed aside. Rather, he presented sin as a colossal defect in his very nature. You too must realize that sin is the great problem of your life. Sin dwells in your nature just as blood flows through your veins. 
And so you need a radical solution and a thorough cleansing. You must be born again. You are unworthy before God, far beneath what he intended and what he expected. And we're still. Sin made you a lawbreaker. Your sin has brought you under God's just condemnation and no redress is available on your part. You have no justification. If you have a hard time accepting this dreadful reality and you're prone to deny your sin and even minimize your guilt, then you should pray for the Holy Spirit to enliven your conviction. Just as God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David and soften his hardened heart so that he could confess his sin. Confession of sin is necessary to repentance in the same way that algebra is a prerequisite for calculus. Facing the reality of our sin and the shame of our guilt makes us want to repent. And yet, sadly, many people do not proceed from the conviction of sin to true repentance because they fail to realize the second point in Psalm 51, namely that repentance relies on the mercy of God. You see, the mercy of God is perhaps the most important thing to know about repentance. The obligation to repent unnerves some people because they assume that repentance relies on their own works. And to such people, repentance to them means turning their life around before they can come to God, getting God to, or cleaning themselves up so they'll be acceptable to God. And yet the problem is they can never change themselves sufficiently because the power of sin is simply too strong. Sin's claws are in the sinner's flesh and they hold them in a bondage that they cannot escape. And as David realized, sin corrupts the very sinner's nature so that their desires run towards evil. Discouraged and even disgruntled, the self-reliant sinner thinks of God as a problem rather than as the answer. You see, if the sinner hates his sin, he hates God even more for requiring a repentance that he cannot perform. And this was Martin Luther, that Protestant reformer's experience before he discovered the mercy of God in the gospel. Luther was terrified by the guilt of sin. He confessed his sin regularly. In fact, he drove the priests mad with endless sessions in the confession booth. And then Luther would set out to do better, only to find that he could not. He was once asked, Martin, don't you love God? And Luther responded, love God? I hate God, he said. He hated God because he could not see a way of escape from God's judgment. And many today are sadly like Luther. And notice now then how David begins Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, in verse 1 of Psalm 51. This plea makes all the difference to the convicted sinner. The difference between sorrow and joy, despair and hope, resentful anger and loving worship of God. Repentance relies not on our works, David knew, but directly on the mercy of God. James Boyce says this, Mercy is the sole basis for any approach to God by sinners. We cannot come to God on the basis of his justice. Justice strikes us with fear and causes us to hide from him. We are not drawn to God by his wisdom. Wisdom does not embolden us, though we stand in awe of it. No more does omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipresence, the only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for any solution to our sin problem is the mercy of God, James Boyce says. And here is the good news that Christianity proclaims to the world. God has mercy for sinners who need to repent. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. 
God's mercy is most vividly shown in the coming of Jesus Christ, who came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve and was buried and rose again. And now think how often Jesus is seen in the Gospels healing the sick. This was God's mercy for a sick and even a sinful world. Mark tells of a leper, the ultimate symbol of corrupt humanity coming to Jesus. A leper had disease running through his veins just as sinners have corrupt desires infecting our souls. Lepers were contagious, so people scattered when they encountered such a defiled person. And yet Jesus remained as the leper approached. Falling to his knees, the wretched man begged, If you will, you can make me clean. Mark tells us in Mark 1, 40-42, Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. This is the mercy that is, that is willing to receive and to heal you, granting you the power of God's grace to overcome your sin and enabling you to repent. While sin is far stronger than our strength of will, it is only the second greatest power in the world. There is a greater power. The grace of God extended to sinners who cry to him as David did, Have mercy on me, O God. And how can it be, someone might ask, that a holy God can show mercy to guilty sinners? If God is a righteous judge, and if we have transgressed the law of God, how can he simply blot out the record of our sins? And the answer is found in the third point of Psalm 51, showing that repentance finds cleansing through the blood of Christ. David prays for this washing, saying in Psalm 51, 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than so. Hyssop was a spongy plant that grew in crevices, often on walls. And because of its shape and its texture, it's used as a small brush. In Israel's sacrificial system, the hyssop brush was used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the one to be cleansed. And we remember the leper who came to Jesus as a picture of the one corrupted by sin. And we should note that the hyssop brush was especially mentioned in the cleansing rite for those cured of leprosy. This ritual taught in Leviticus 14 involved two live birds. One was killed and the hyssop brush was dipped in its blood which was then sprinkled on the leper to be cleansed. This is what David sought in Psalm 51, 7. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. And the second live bird was then dipped in the blood and then released to fly away in the sky. This flight symbolized the complete removal of a sin and guilt. The red stain flew upward until it could no longer be seen. Psalm 103, 12 uh, tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The rite concluded with the former lepers washing his body and his clothes, just as David prayed in Psalm 51, 7. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This ritual foretold the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Like the first bird, Jesus was put to death for our sin. He died to pay the penalty of our sins under the law of God. And when we trust in Christ's death, his blood is applied to us and we are made clean. Jesus has sent our guilt away just as a live bird flew away with the red stain of sin. The Apostle John declared in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now notice how complete and how thorough this cleansing is. In verse 7 of Psalm 51, David says, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This is a righteousness of which we can hardly conceive. 
having so little practical experience of it in this life. And yet scripture teaches that if we come to God through faith in Jesus, we stand perfectly clean before him. John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of God's Son cleanses us from all sin. And while some people find it hard to admit their sinfulness, others condemn themselves all too readily. These unfortunate souls find it difficult to believe that anything could really cleanse them. And yet God says that if you come to Christ to be washed clean, his blood will make you not a dingy brown, but a gleaming white like snow. Isaiah 118 assures you that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red, a red like crimson, they shall become wool. Have you found this cleansing today through the blood of Christ? Every chill, ch- church, every church, I should say, is filled with great sinners who have offended God in many terrible ways. Some have committed murder or assault or adultery. Some have been vandals and thieves. Many have lied and slandered using their tongues to destroy and to sow discord and blaspheme the holy name of God. And yet every one of us is guilty of these kinds of terrible sins. And the sins we have not committed with our hands, we have committed in the desire of our hearts. We have been rebels who fall short of what God desires and what God demands. And for some, our great need is to confess that we have sinned against God and are rightly condemned. Others are being crushed under the burden of unforgiven sin and an uncleansed soul. If we will look to Jesus Christ, we will find a God who loved us enough to send his son to bear the guilt of our sins. We will be cleansed, whiter than snow, washed and renewed because of Christ. Jesus will clothe us in the perfect robes of his righteousness and the wreck of our sins will be nailed to the cross where he redeems us with his own precious blood and where he on the third day rose uh, again to new life. And because of that, he gives us new life. And yet the Christian life does not end with forgiveness. It begins there. Repentance not only finds cleansing in the blood of Christ, but also as David's fourth point is in our text today in Psalm 51, repentance produces new obedience in the power of God's Spirit. Repentance is not merely turning away from sin. It's also walking with God in holiness. And David says this in Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now David's plan and his plea indicates all the blessings that sin steals from us. Purity of heart, steadfastness of spirit, the joy of salvation. These same blessings are restored by repentance. Your repentance is not complete without them. In fact, repentance is not sincere and genuine unless it produces the gospel joy and the godly resolve that we see here in David in Psalm 51. Now, to be clear, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We do not live a godly life in order to achieve repentance. And yet the one who knows himself cleansed by Christ's precious blood and who rejoices in the priceless gift of salvation goes on to lead an increasingly godly life out of gratitude to God. We see this in the life of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector in Jericho who enriched himself by robbing and cheating the poor. When Zacchaeus came to faith in Christ and received salvation, it was only natural for him to rejoice in making restitution. In Luke 19.8, it says, Behold, the Lord, the, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it 
fourfold. Now David in Psalm 51 has similar motives. His sin against Bathsheba had terrible consequences for the life of the nation. The bad example of David as a king reverberated throughout the kingdom. He prays for God's spirit, not just for his own spiritual uplifting, but so that he can get busy undoing some of the harm he's done. In Psalm 51, 13, he wants to teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will return to you. Psalm 51, 14, and 15 tell of David's desire to sing praise to God. David wants the Jerusalem that he, he was torn down by sin to be built up with godliness. He wants the spiritual life of the nation to be restored. As he says in verses 18 and 19, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in right sacrifice and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51, 16 through 17, it makes a vital statement that applies to every sinner who turns to God and now wants to give back to the Lord. When he says, you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is an important declaration of what Old Testament religion was all about. God was never interested in mere rituals but always desired the heart response of faith and so david wanted to offer god a heart that was now pierced by the gravity of sin pliable in the hands of god and sensitive to the truth of god in the word psalm 51 17 says the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart O god you will not despise likewise the highest and even the best offering we can give to god is our hearts broken over our sin and responsive to grace. And so the proper fruit of repentance is nothing less than this self-offering to God with the inevitable result of restitution for prior sin and new obedience to the word of God. In fact, if you've never experienced the blessing of forgiveness, cleansing, and renewal, Psalm 51 urges you to repent and turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and come to God for mercy through the cleansing of the blood of Christ. And yet we are mistaken if we think repentance is something we do only to become Christians for the first time. And nor is repentance only for Christians who have sinned massively as David did with Bathsheba. The truth about repentance is what Martin Luther proclaimed in his very first of his famous 95 Thesis. When he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent. He intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And Luther was arguing against the mechanical system of penance, taught then as now by the Roman Catholic Church. Repentance was little more than saying a few Our Fathers and Hail Marys after leaving the confessional booth or even handing over money to buy indulgence. Luther would have argued just as vigorously against today's attitude that repentance is unpleasant an unpleasant necessity or a mere formality to do once and to put behind you. Instead, repentance is the mode in which Christians humbly live their entire lives before the face of God. St. Clair Ferguson rightly says, Repentance is a characteristic of the whole of life, not the action of a single moment. Salvation means we are actually being saved. And so repentance requires confession of sin. It requires reliance on the mercy of God. It finds cleansing through the blood of Christ, and it produces new obedience through the Holy Spirit. This is the believer's daily experience if they are in Christ. In fact, we can work out this calling to repentance in a number of ways, beginning with worship. 
One of the worst things that happens when people fall into sin is that they stop worshiping God. They forget that they can bring their sin to God who in his mercy offers forgiveness and cleansing for them. The problem is, is that almost as bad arises when people do come to God for worship but, without, but come without repentance. And yet Psalm 51 tells us how to approach God depicting the attitude that we should have in worship. The way to begin worship is not to come in our own righteousness but to come as David says in Psalm 51, 1, have mercy on me, O God. We must worship as sinners coming to a God of mercy through Christ's cleansing blood, offering our hearts contritely to him and looking to his spirit for help. And so repentance describes the way we should study the Bible and seek to grow in the Christian truth. The problem with so many profess, professional theologians today is that they do not study with repentant minds. Repentance is the way in which we give our minds as well as our hearts to God. How should you approach your Bible to receive the word of God? How should you prepare to hear a sermon? The answer is, is that you must humbly open your heart, being eager to have your errors corrected and your faith built up. One reason why so many people get so little out of the preaching they hear is that they sit before the minister with hearts that are not broken and contrite. They have already decided what they want to believe and are not prepared to yield to the truth of Scripture. We should therefore always approach the Word of God by confessing the sinfulness in our thinking and the corruption that keeps us from the truth. And then we should ask for the mercy of God, plead the cleansing blood of, of Christ, and pray for the help of God through the enlightening work of His Holy Spirit. Christians, and especially if you preach, you must approach the Word of God with repentance. Finally, how should you approach the challenges that you face every day? The answer is found in repentance coupled with faith. You should receive every trial, every opportunity, as a sinner who is guilty of transgressions and worthy to be condemned. What a cure repentance is to self-pity. And then remember the mercy of God who graciously, who willing, is willing to receive your prayers and help you. You should offer your works, your ministry, your labor through the cleansing blood of Christ, undaunted by their imperfections and the residue of your sin, asking Christ to receive them with his blessing. You should ask God uh, for the Spirit to empower you to trust and to glorify him. And if you will offer your whole life through repentance and faith, God will do more than just cleanse you and forgive you. He will do a lasting work for you. And in terms of David's concluding verses, the Lord will make Zion prosper and build up the walls of his city. God will gain sacrifices that are pleasing to him and worshipers who come to him in spirit and truth. And so repentance joined with faith is the Christian's whole way of life, his or her path of blessing to the glory of the God of grace and mercy. Too many Christians, they treat repentance, oh, I'm just sorry for my sin. But are you truly sorry? Are you sorry enough to, as David does, spe get specific about your sin? Are you willing to talk about your sin with somebody, anybody, but with God? Or are you just going to keep it in a nice little bubble and just treat it like it, it doesn't exist, like it's not there? But the thing is, is even there you have to understand that your sin is known by God. He sees it. He knows it. We're, we're talking about the God who made you. We're talking about the God 
who knows the hairs on your head. He knows the thoughts that you think before you think them. He knows the motivations of your heart. He calls all the cells in your body to function. Even, even the ones right now where you can see through your eyes and hear through your earbuds. And that's the point. You cannot fake God out. And too many people think, oh, you know what? I'm doing God a favor even by repenting of my sin, by even being sorry. But, but that's not repentance. Repentance is not doing God a favor. In Christ, in, this is why Jesus came under the sentence of death, Matthew one twenty one tells us. He came to pay the penalty that we justly deserve in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise on the third day. We do not deserve that. And we don't have to work for it. It was done for us. John 19.30 says, Jesus, one, one of his last seven words, he says, it is finished. That means that it was signed, it was sealed, and it was delivered in the blood of our Savior, King, and Lord. That means that salvation is not something that I do. Jonah 2.9 says that salvation is of the Lord. And so salvation from beginning to end and everywhere in between, from conversion to justification to adoption to redemption and reconciliation, all of it is of the Lord from beginning to end. Even our sanctification is of the Lord. It is the Holy Spirit working in us to do, as Paul says, you know, to do his goodwill and pleasure. And that's of God as well. The Spirit is at work in the life of the Christian. And so, yes, repentance is not just then the door that leads us to Christ and by which we go through that door to salvation. Repentance is the Christian life, as Calvin and Luther and so many others have said. That's why we have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need, as Charles Spurgeon once said. And so we can trust Christ. We can take him at his word. We don't have to play pretend. The the really mature Christian, as John Newton wisely said, they know, they know their great need of Christ, and they believe that Christ alone can meet that need. That's real maturity right there. That's really doing what this text tells us to do. Not just to to gloss over our sin as so often in modern evangelicalism today, but to take ownership of it, to be specific about it, to take it to God, to see it for what it is. As R.C. Sproul once said, cosmic treason against God. And to put yourself under the righteousness of Christ. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's for the Christian. You get specific about and acknowledge, as David did, your need of forgiveness. 
and then you turn away from it with the help of God by his grace through the spirit because you're united to him by faith. And if you need help, that's when you reach out to others for an arm around the shoulder and some help walking this walk of faith. But first, we are to go to God. And then we can go and ask for help from God's people. A word about that. Galatians 6, 1-2 through 2 says very clearly that we are to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So that's why I say that accountability is first and foremost an arm around the shoulder, not a finger in the face. It is a doing life with one another, life on life, as, as we're told over 50 times in the New Testament, to one another each other. It's, it's a coming alongside of each other. Not pointing the finger at our face, realizing, as John Flavel said, that it's easier to cry a, a thousand sins in somebody else than it is one of mine. It is an acknowledgement of the truth of this song. That we have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need, as Spurgeon said. And that, as Newton said, again, to be a well-instructed Christian is to acknowledge that fact that Spurgeon says. That's real maturity, real Christian maturity. It shows real Christian growth. So wherever you are today, whether and whatever that struggle is, you have a need of Christ. And you have a great Christ to meet that need. And that is profoundly good news. That's profoundly good news for the non-Christian. You are at war with God. You are dead, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins. But you don't have to be dead in your trespasses and sins because Paul says, now it's Christians. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. See, that can be you today. You who were once dead in your trespasses and sins can be made alive to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You who were once an enemy of God can be now become a friend of God. You who were once a, a, a part and under the domain, as Paul said in Colossians 1, the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, you as Colossians 1 says, can be transferred into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. You can become his, and he can become yours. You can be united to Christ by faith in his name. And this is not only the beauty of Christ, this is the glory of Christ. This is why Christ has come. Luke 19.10 says that he came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to bring us partway into the kingdom, but to take us into the kingdom, to secure us in the kingdom, so that we would be his and he would be ours. This is why when he said it's finished, that veil tore from the top to the bottom, that veil that separated our access, our ability to God to come to him. This is why now because of Christ, Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2 very clearly tell us that we can come before God. And that God, uh, to the Christian, in Hebrews 4.15, he understands our weakness. 
because he dealt with it. And yet, he never sinned. And that is profoundly good news for you and I. It means that what Christ has said he will do, he can actually do. And not only can he do it, he does do it. And not only will he do it, he always will. Because Titus 1-2 says that God never lies. God always acts consistently and he always acts coherently. He will always act in line with his revealed will in the word of God. Because he is a faithful and a true and a loving and a just and a holy God. He will act and he will do as he has said. That is profoundly good news. And I hope today that you will take your sin. If you're not saved, you will take it to Jesus. And you will do what Acts 16.31 says, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. And if you are a Christian, I plead with you to again and again cast yourself on the perfect, spotless, righteous of Christ, not for salvation, but so that you might grow in the grace and knowledge of God as Second uh, Peter 3.18 says, revealed in the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that you take your word and you put up uh, the mirror of our lives and you show us, you show us the spots you show us our blemishes. You show us our sin. You show us our failure. You show us the many ways in which, Lord, we dishonor you by the way that we live. How we are, how we behave and act. And the way that we think that in our own sufficiency, we, we can do something. We can help another person even. And yet even there, that's, that's a form of works. Lord, what we need is your grace. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there, there's grace at the beginning. There's grace in the middle. There's grace at the end. And there's grace all the time. Grace, wondrous grace. And Lord, grace to do your will grace to obey, grace to put our sin to death. There's grace, there's grace. Grace that will lead us home. Grace that will hold us fast. So Lord, help us to cling to and trust the grace of God revealed in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.